2: Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash
1: It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff.
4: the
1: volume boxing with chris mannix is brought to you by fanduel it's never been easier to play fantasy on fanduel whether you love basketball golf soccer or any other fantasy sport there is a contest for every fan fanduel more ways to win
3: All right, this is Boxing with Chris Mannix, part of the Volume Sports Podcast Network. We are coming to you live from the arena floor of the MGM Grand in Las Vegas on Saturday. As most of you listening to this podcast know, this city will host the Manny Pacquiao, your Dennis Ugas, Welterweight title fight. It will also be home to WWE SummerSlam, one of the WWE's marquee events, which will take place just down the road at Allegiant Stadium. If you can't make it, you can watch on Peacock with the broadcast beginning at eight o'clock Eastern time. So, when the idea of doing something here was first floated to me with members of the WWE Universe, I was offered up some active wrestlers, and I respect those active wrestlers. I just don't know a lot about them. So, I asked for some of the legends of boxing, and I'm pleased that two of them were able to stop by the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. And Jimmy Mouth of the South Heart. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Pleasure Thanks to Thanks for here. having us here. Thanks for you guys, yeah, thank man. You. Thank you. See, thank I you. knew you guys would be popular. <laughs> I knew you'd be popular. Um, so I was a fan of both of you coming up. Watched uh, you as a wrestler, of course, Ted. You as a manager for many years, uh, Jimmy. And one of the questions I always have with, with people like you is the origin stories of the name. And, Ted, you have one of the great monikers in wrestling history the million dollar man recognized worldwide we were talking earlier about how there needs to be a million dollar man slot machine here <laughs> at this casino of some kind but everybody here would play uh, that slot tell me the story of how kind of the million dollar man came to be well the
5: concept the uh, the idea of the the general character was a Vince McMahon original as a matter of fact uh some of the some of the guys have said that if, if Vince could be a character in his own show that he would have been the million dollar man uh but uh when he invited me up to uh the office in stanford and kind of laid it out and he says i have this idea you know this ultra rich guy <coughs> uh who abuses everybody you know with his money uh he, he bullies people with his wealth and uh you know i mean just laid it all. he says he says uh uh, Lear jets, limousines, the, the whole nine yards. Of course, I didn't know that he meant that literally every day, all the time. Uh, but when he laid it all out, he says, we haven't named this character yet. And it just off the top of my head, I said, he sounds like a million dollar man to me. And he goes "The million dollar man. He is. And so that's, that's how it was born. Did you embrace it right away? Oh yeah. I mean, (laughs) I mean, I mean, and what's funny is that it was two meetings. I had my initial meeting with him and you know, it was kind of like uh, I was a little—I just didn't know yet. I mean, it's like he, what he said to me was—he says I have an idea for a character. It's never been done before. He says I've watched you; you're you're great on the microphone. You're you're a great wrestler. He says I think I think this is great for your type of a heel. And he says, but until I get it, okay, until I get you saying, yes, I'm your guy, I'm not going to tell you anything else because I don't want to give away a great idea. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was the initial meeting. And so I went and uh, I called a couple of the guys that I always run everything by, one of those being Terry Funk. Mm -hmm. And Terry basically said, he said, Teddy, he says, "If if, if Vince McMahon has something that he thinks is Taylor made for you, pack your bag go, go after it and don't look back. Mm-hmm. So I called Vince back and I said, okay, I'm your guy. What is it? He said, Oh no, no, no. I says, I'm not going to tell you on the phone. I wanted to fly you back. And so he flew my wife and I both back to New York, the whole nine yards, the limo treatment, the whole deal. And then he laid out the basic character of the million dollar man. And so then this guy comes in and he counts out $2,000 in brand new hundred dollar bills. And Vince says, "This is your flash cash." He says, "I always want you to have this on you." He says, "If you buy a a, a piece of bubblegum, pay for it with the hundred dollar bill." And people hate that. And so, uh, when I walked out of there, and and then he says that, and he says, "They, you know, got you and your wife a room at the Helmsley Palace in Manhattan. The limo's yours. Go do what you want to do. Start being the million dollar man." It's like a fairy tale. I mean, at the beginning. Uh, but it was it, but it was a lot of hard work I mean our I mean uh, when I first came on board we were doing uh 21 straight days 21 yep. cities a week off and go go, go do it again mm-hmm. but uh Anyway, I survived it, and here I am. <laughs>
3: here you are, Jimmy. What about you? You, as I was doing some research here, I I heard of the Strapmaster. Was that a thing? No, no, that wasn't me. I think that was Kevin Sullivan. All right, the Memphis Chicken was that a no. thing? I lost
0: a match to the Memphis Chicken, okay, so there's a little. <laughs> Jesse the Body Ventura was my partner against Jerry the King Lawler, in the Memphis Chicken, and I lost a match, so, right, so, so I had some... to wear the chicken outfit for a week.
3: So some disinformation out there about your uh, it's previous. It's not true. It's not, not, true. not true. So tell me, where did Give me the origin story of Mouth of the South. What happened uh, at Channel
0: 5 TV in Memphis, Tennessee, above us, there was a radio station called FM 100. So we had to go up there and do a promo one day after it, me and Andy Coppen So Andy and I were up there. So the DJ was asking us a lot of questions, right? And so I wouldn't let Andy talk. And so the DJ goes, Andy, you're going to realize Jimmy Hart's the Mouth of the South. And I went, oh, I like that. He's not going to let you talk. So that's how it really happened. And did you embrace that right away. I loved it. I thought it was great. Hmm. And I took it to New York, and, you know, here we are.
3: And you, one of the things that people, I don't think, know, people that are just more of the casual fans, you're a tremendous composer. Like, that is... Well, I don't know about being tremendous. I was part of a group called The
0: Gentrys. We were one-hit wonders. Hmm. But I guess it's better to have one hit than no hit. We had a million-seller in the 60s called Keep On Dancing. We did all the tours with The Beach Boys, Dick Clark, Steppenwolf, a lot of those groups back then. And um, when I went to New York... Vince asked me to do a few songs. We got to write, me and my partner got to write Ted DiBiase's song, Money, Money, Money. And then uh, we did Shawn Michaels, Sexy Boy, The Road Warriors, all of the honky tonk man's greatest hits, like the big one, A Honka Honka Honky Love,
3: and You Ain't Nothing But a Honky Dog Baby. <laughs> so you know, you kind of know the pathway of a wrestler. They, they work their way up to local circuits, things like that. Of a boxing manager, what does that journey look like?
0: It looks pretty rough. <laughs> it looks pretty <laughs> dead gum rough. I'll tell you that now because I've seen a few boxing matches. And uh, and plus, we did a lot of stuff, too, with... Um, uh, but, but not Muhammad Ali, but Mike Tyson. We did a lot of things for Big Mike, and so uh, we got to go to a few of his matches, and uh, some of them were pretty short, so you had to get sit down early for those, right? Didn't buy any popcorn, but uh, he was tough, man. But um, like I said before, you know, I think that's a league. I don't want to be in UFC or boxing. Mm-hmm. I want to
3: stick right where I'm at. Mm-hmm. But be- becoming a manager, though, like, I mean, do you is that something, how does that sort of seed in your mind there? Like, I want to get into the boxing management Business.
0: Well, I think if you got into the box and I think it's a lot of hard work because I think you've got to be kind of somebody that's with them all the time, that's uh, a little help to them. You know what I mean? You're gonna win. Don't worry about it, baby. Tell you, I know you got knocked out the first round the night, but maybe tomorrow night you'll go two rounds. Please, don't worry. <laughs> hey, just give me my ten percent or fifteen percent. <laughs> so it's all good.
3: Yeah. The, the as far as like the guys you've sort of you know managed over the Absolutely. years in WWE. This guy being one of them sitting next to you. Who has been your favorite?
0: Well, I'm not saying it because Ted was here, but but Ted was so great because uh, no big hassle with Ted, you know. Plus, with him, I got to ride in the limousine, and we got to fly first class, and it was good. Now, with the hookster, when I managed to talk, I got to ride first class, the limousine, but me and Honky, let me tell you something, baby. I love the honky tonk man, but we didn't get no limousines, I'll tell you that right now. So, And definitely the Nasty Boys, none were none the Nasty Boys. Boys, a Terry Funk, a Dory Funk, or uh Adrian Adonis, a Dino, but I'm name dropping right now, for everybody I managed. Okay. Uh, uh King Kong Bundy. You know, we had so many of the great people that I was lucky to go to the ring with. There oh yeah, there you go. Bobby I had Bobby Eaton down in Memphis, Tennessee. They were part of the
3: first family. Thanks for recognizing that. Thank you, darling. You know, Ted, when um people think of wrestlers they know who they are they know their monikers but they also know their finishing moves that's often how great wrestlers are identified whether it's stone cold steve austin the rock you know you you associate that the million dollar dream tell me where that came from
5: well it's actually uh and it's it's a it's a, co- a common finisher uh who was it Sergeant Slaughter yeah. used the same thing. What did he, what did he, what's what Slaughter call his thing? Cobra clutch. Is Cobra a, there clutch. you go. Thank yeah. you. Thank well, you to the thank the you. Cobra clutch and the million dollar dream are the, are the same hole. Hmm. It's just that I, and I, I chose that as a finisher because it's somebody that I could, something I could do to anybody. Hmm. Now there's some finishers, you know, I go, okay, you know, you're going to give them some big power move and, then you get in the ring with a 350 pound guy and go, I don't think I can do that with him. But I could put the million dollar dream on anybody.
6: Yeah.
3: yeah. Now who's the biggest guy you had to put it on? Oh, gosh. Uh,
5: well, thank goodness I never had to try to put it on Andre. Andre was always my tag team partner. That's right. <laughs> Probably Hulkster. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I you know I was watching the the great Andre the Giant documentary on HBO earlier this week rewatching it and you obviously had a, a relationship with him back in the day your any favorite Andre the Giant stories that stand out
5: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know Andre was a bigger than life guy and, I, and and by the way I I watched the HBO documentary and I thought they did a very good job of helping the public understand just. How lonely that guy's life really was for being such a big guy who everybody recognized. But Andre was a lot of fun. So we flew to Japan. It's a 14-hour flight. And yeah, he's sitting in first class, but him sitting in first class is like like me sitting in coach. You know, I can sit in that seat, but I'm not real comfortable. Mm-hmm. So we get there, we get to the hotel, and everybody's gonna, you know, freshen up and we're gonna go out and we're gonna eat. You know, and stay up as late as you can the first night, you know, because of the time change. So I go out and hit the elevator button. The door opens and there's Andre. And he goes, hey, boss, let's go eat. So the elevator starts down. This elevator stops on virtually every floor. Now, two stops ago, you and I would have said, this elevator is full. Get the next one. That's not true in Japan. You see... The whole country is the size of California. Hmm. Three-quarters of that land mass is uninhabitable mountains. But the population of Japan is half that of the United States. So you're stacking them up. You know, and so they just – anyway. So, I mean, this elevator is getting full. And so this last time that people kept getting on, the door shuts. I'm looking straight ahead. And the next thing you hear was the loudest – Longest fart you have ever heard in your life. <laughs> this is this is Andre. And I'm I'm staring straight ahead, biting a hole through my lip and thinking, now I know it's the giant, but how could any human possibly have that much air in their body? And all I could all I could envision is that poor little Japanese guy standing directly behind him. But I want you to know something with that elevator door. Open! It was like the Exodus. They were tripping over each other to get out the door, and as the door shut, there was only two people on that elevator: me and Andre. And andre's all you could hear was oh, "oh, oh, oh," and he looked down at me. And he says, "I guess they won't crowd the big man anymore, will they?" <laughs> Jimmy, you never got the chance to manage Andre, did you?
0: I came close to it toward the end of his career. Uh, he had fired Bobby. He, he got rid of Slick. Slick was trying to manage him. Uh, some of the other managers were, too. So I had the last-ditch effort. So I had to go down to ringside, and I brought him all the way up. Uh, and I was trying to convince him, you need to be with me, man, the mouth of the south. Jimmy Hart, look who all I managed, champions, tag team, single champions. So in the ring, he didn't like it, so he picked me up to choke me. When he did, I happened to... Drop accidentally, my megaphone. So when I did, Earthquake picked it up. We took Andre's legs out from under. We put the boots to him because we were going to come back with the uh, Andre against Earthquake. But he had a knee operation, so it didn't heal right. So we had to come back. And me and Tugboat and, uh, and of course, Earthquake, we fought the Bushwhackers with Andre at ringside. So that's the closest I came to it. How would Andre and Earth versus Earthquake have played out? I think that would have been a pretty good match. Yeah. You forget... In the dressing room each night, it was like an office. When I'd go into the dressing room, you'd be Andre playing cards with Arnold Scholten. Over to my right, there was a honky-tonk man tuning the guitar. There was Jake Roberts with Damien, the British Bulldogs feeding Matilda. You had the Nasty Boys talking over their match with the Rougeau brothers, and when they got the ring, they forgot everything they talked about, you know. <laughs> but it was just a great era back then. It was so much fun. All of our guys were bigger-than-life characters, and we traveled down the road seven days a week. And like I said before, if it wasn't for the WWE Universe or our fans out here now we wouldn't be sitting here today that's right did you jimmy prefer to manage tag teams or singles you know what i really enjoyed whatever vince and them put me with it really didn't matter to me i love the tag teams you know the heart foundation was a lot of fun to be with everybody but then i had the single matches too you know it's according to where you were on the card uh honky tonk we had a great run over a year with the honky tonk man with the belt and everything else so we were always pretty high on the card and the heart foundations when we had the tag belts they were up on the card pretty well too so the higher on the card the more money you make so it didn't matter whoever i was
3: with as long as i made the jack the it was cool <laughs> ted we talked about you and andre being a pair but who was your favorite tag team partner over the years oh my gosh uh
5: I didn't do a, a whole lot of tag team, but, yeah, I definitely Mike Rotunda,
3: R- IRS. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say that. I feel like most people, Money, Inc., they know yeah. you and IRS as tag team partners. Absolutely. And, again, you know, Jimmy managed us, too.
0: We had the theme song for him, like we talked about, too, but what a great team. Both of them were so good in the ring. Ted and and, and um, Mike right. Rotunda, oh, my gosh. I mean, they were they. They could do it all, but they were still colorful, too. Mm-hmm. And in this business, you really have to be a little colorful. I don't care how good you are. You can drop, kick, dive over the top rope, underneath the rope, walk underneath the rope, do anything you want to do, but you still got to have some kind of personality for the people to relate to you.
3: Yeah. Ted, what made that pairing with IRS work
5: so well over the years? You know, it's hard to put a finger on it. I guess number one is just that, you know, uh, we had a mutual respect for each other. And I had I had seen a lot of Mike's work before we were tag team partners, and it was just one of those things that gelled. I mean, we both basically had the same, um, you know, we had the same view of the psychology of what the wrestling business is, and so I think that's why we worked so well together.
3: The, um,
6: as,
3: if I get this wrong, correct me. But in, in wrestling, there's babyface and there's heel, right? There's the good guy and the bad guy. What did you prefer being?
5: Oh, I love to be in the heel. Yeah. <laughs> I love to be in the heel cuz it was so it was so foreign to who I really am. It's funny. It's like if you if you talk to my wife, she's you know like we'll have people over and sit down and everything and I'm usually one of the quietest people in in in, in the room. I, I I listen a lot more than I talk. Mm-hmm. You know, in in my private life. So it's really funny when we we meet some new folks and you know they come by and they they you know, they sit with us and everything and they say so what did you do for a living Ted? Well I was a professional wrestler and I said you know I give them something to go home and watch <laughs> and they go they go see me as the million dollar man. Everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're then they call me and they go. Is that really you? <laughs> it's because it's just so different.
3: So you enjoyed you know, hearing the booze of the crowd every big event. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was my
5: job. I mean, I, I, even now I have a lot of fans who will come up to get an autograph and they'll say, please don't be offended, Mr. DiBiase. But when I was a kid, I hated your guts. And I
3: just start laughing. I go, thank you. Thank you very much. That How was are you my doing your job. That was that my job. That's it. And Jimmy, you you were never really the heel, were you, in your days? I mean, well, it was I'll, one turn maybe at the end. I mean, if I remember that babyface. Yeah, babyface, sorry. Yo, yeah. Well, what happened is,
0: matter of fact, I was managing Ted DiBiase and Erwin R. Scheister, and we were in New York. And all of a sudden, they had a match against Brutus. And Brutus just came out did an interview going, I just came back from wrestling. I got plates in my face. My wife left me. My dog ran off. My cat died. The goldfish swam out of the thing. And somebody yelled out, you know why? Because you're a loser. And we went, oh, my God. We had to shoot the single, right? And so during the match, they took my megaphone. And we going to smash Brutus's face in. But what did I do? Oh, my gosh tag team champions now. I'll leave the tag team champions. I dive across Brutus' face to save him. They leave me in the ring, and then the Hulkster goes, you know, Jimmy Hart, I knew you were a Hulkamaniac all along. So I joined Hulk and Brutus for WrestleMania 9 to go against these two guys. Yeah. So, Schrader. You know you know what it really is? See, when you're a heel or a bad guy, whatever, you can do anything. You can trip coming in the ring and go, who put Vaseline on this rope? You know? You, you could do anything you wanted to do, and, and it didn't really matter, but the baby face, you gotta kind of be a little, have a little bit of etiquette. You know what I mean? A little bit more of a straight edge too. There you go. There
3: you go. A little bit more of a straight edge okay. there, um, Ted. If 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 people are kind of hearing this for the first time, want to look at the most memorable match in the history of Ted DiBiase. What would you say that match was? Oh my gosh! I mean, there's there's
5: there's. So, I get asked that question a lot, and there, there's there's so many there. But I, okay, I'll, there's the, the highlight reel. I would say. Um. My my uh my first, I main event at WrestleMania four, mm-hmm. and that main event ended up being me and Macho Man Randy Savage. I thought I had a great match with Randy and many others after that. Mm-hmm. Um a SummerSlam. Uh, you know, my my favorite SummerSlam uh match was uh SummerSlam ninety-two. And that was uh again, that's me and IRS against uh Hawking animal, the Road Warriors. Wait a minute! What about me? I was there too. Oh yeah! By the way, Jimmy was there too. <laughs> thank you,
3: thank you, thank you. What made those? I mean, what, I, what makes a when you what makes it special to you? Like, is it just how it plays out yeah. the very end? I mean, what makes a, a great match? Well, that's just it. I mean, it's like
5: if, if you have a match that really excites the people that uh, puts them on the edge of the uh, edge of their seat, you know, and usually in a tag match, it's like. At some point during that match, there, there's there's one uh, one one good guy who's going to get really taken advantage of by the by the heels, and you know, and as he continues to try to get to his corner for the tag, it's like each time it's like he gets a little closer, he gets a little bit closer, and the people are going crazy, you know, and he's you're he, you're almost there, he's almost going, and, and you cut him off again, but then finally when he you do something, somebody misses something, and he gets that that really hot tag, the whole building erupts, you know, and then he makes a comeback on, on, on both, on both heels. And then the other baby face joins in and, you know, then you do whatever you're going to do.
3: Hey, Jimmy, what's the, when you think of the storylines you've been involved with over your, your long career, like, was there a favorite for you? Well, you know what
0: I liked? Um, well, first of all, People always ask me, what's the most important match I've ever been on? WrestleMania 1. Yeah. Because if WrestleMania 1 had been successful, we wouldn't be sitting here today. So that was great. But I, I loved uh, WrestleMania 3, Silver Dawn in Detroit. I had to go out three different occasions. I changed jacket three different times. I went out with the Hart uh, Foundation and Danny Davis against the Bulldogs and Tito Santana. Came back, changed jackets, went back out again with the honky tonk man against um, Jake Roberts, of course, with Alice Cooper. Matter of fact, I saw Alice Cooper last weekend, so I got a good picture made with him. I said, thanks a lot for throwing the snake on me. And then, last but not least, I had the match with Adrian Adonis against uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, you know. So all three of those were very, very good. But all of them had little storylines that were involved in them that played out two or three months ahead of time getting ready for WrestleMania. Mm
3: -hmm. Ted, I asked you about your favorite match, favorite tag team partner, but as far as rivalries go that you had over the years. I know yours, you had some, if I'm getting this right, Hacksaw Jim Duggan back in the days uh, long before. But when you think of the best rivalries of your career, what stands out? Mm, Man
5: oh my gosh well i mean the, the stuff that i did with duggan i mean you named one of them that that was really good uh back in mid-south i had a i had a great run with uh, junkyard dog matter of fact um, you know the thing with junkyard dog is how i turned heel initially you know, everybody knew we, I mean, you know, it's like it's territorial, you know, the wrestling fans, they they, you know, they would see us ride together all the time and uh and you know, he's kinda like uh, I mean he was literally my best friend. Mm-hmm. And then so when I turned on him and and uh you know, and overnight it's kinda like uh we did what was that thing we did where uh um, He went to help me back in the ring, right? We're having this match for the title, and something happens. I go to the floor, and the referee's about to count me out. And and Jay Wade goes, no, 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 I don't want it that way. And he comes out, and he helps me back in the ring. I roll to the middle of the ring, and I reach in, I load the glove, and I knock him out, and and, and then then it was on. And so I told Grizzly Smith, who's Jake Roberts' dad, and he was kind of like the agent who went to all the towns, You know, uh, collected the money and what have you. I told Grizz, I said, the first time I wrestled JYD in New Orleans, I am not driving my car. And he said, why? I said, why? Because it'll be on blocks when we come out. (laughs) And he said, okay, ride with me. I'm neutral. So I rode with him jyd go out and we we have the batch. we tear it down and you know he makes this big comeback on me and I, somehow i load the glove again knock him back out see you next week so i go back in the dressing room and i i took a shower i'm getting dressed and chris comes walking in the dressing room he's got his hands on his hips just shaking his head i said what's wrong Grizz he just shakes his head again i said chris what's wrong I said, something wrong with the match? He said, no, the match was great. I said, so what's wrong? He said, they slit my tires, all four of them. <laughs> I said, you see? You. I said, if it had been my car, you know, it, it would have been out there on blocks. I wouldn't have had any tires. So, you know, that's back when uh, fans took their wrestling real serious.
3: No question. Still do. Jimmy, do you, the, the rivalries you've been involved with, either individually or as a manager, uh, what was one of your favorites? The Hart Foundation against the British
0: Bulldogs. That was That was pretty good. Yes, we like that. And of course, what made that
3: special? What made that one special?
0: All four of the guys were great in the ring. I mean, they were so intense, and everything they did was so crisp, you know, and very, very convincing. Trust me on that. But um, also, uh, the honky talk man and Jake Roberts. But uh, we hardly got to fight Jake that much. We kept the belt for over a year because every time we got Ryder right to fight Jake, he was either sick or something happened. And so it, we had to fight Bruno San Martino one time. Then we got uh, George the Animal Steel. Uh, Ricky Steamboat. I mean, it kept it going for over years. So thank you, Jake, if you're listening. But, um, but we had, but in the Memphis, a lot of the stuff, the Jerry Lawler angle that we had. You know, when Jerry really broke his leg playing football, and I was managing, so I had to go on TV. And Lance Russell goes, Jimmy, Jerry the King Lawler, you're as confident, you're as manager. Let the people know what really happened. And I said, Jerry, who? And they went, what? And he goes you're kidding me and i went let me what do you do when a horse breaks his leg you shoot him and i said jerry Lawler is no use to jimmy hart anymore Lawler, you're in the baptist hospital watching all this today we're crowning the new king of professional wrestling it's either going to be i was managing paul ellering i was managing rick rude i was managing um jim neidhart back then i had king kong bundy all the guys and so we crowned the new king of wrestling so that was a pretty hot feud I was a fan of the natural disasters back in the oh, day. No, earthquake they and were, typhoon. They, were, All right. they, they, they stuck with me. You're the one that bought that t shirt. I had to have been. I had to have been. What were they like? They were great. I mean, unbelievable. And one thing about earthquake looks so menacing. And he looked like a real bad guy, you know, and, and it scared everybody to death. So when we'd go out of the buildings, usually our people would be close by that throw stuff or whatever. With earthquake there? Uh-uh, brother. <laughs> like whoa. You know, so uh,
5: it was great. We had a great run. Yeah, but if you ever if you ever met the guy, what an, oh, a, you
3: sweetheart, know, one of the sweetheart, guys. yeah. Is that mostly how it is? I mean, where characters aren't who they? I mean, you just said you weren't. Certainly, yeah. you weren't like the Million Dollar Man. Yeah. How often is it where mm-hmm. the character doesn't fit the person? Uh, and does it matter really?
5: Yeah, I, I don't know that it matters as far as business goes, but I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of times, some some of the guys that seem to be the the biggest badasses were in real life some of the nicest guys mm-hmm. you know but you know and you, you talked about Jake you know Jake's another guy who's an extremely extremely great wrestler and and as far as standout matches you know Wrestlemania 6 I wrestled him you know up in Canada was we, Canada where we did sure. Wrestlemania 6 yeah and in Toronto and that was one of the you know one of the best messages I think that I
3: had got hit with that DDT did you?
5: Uh, yeah, well, yeah, you
3: know, I always love that move. That's one of my, it (laughs) It does
0: happen. If you look back, it takes
3: a good, bad guy. I mean, a good, good guy to make a good, bad guy.
1: Yeah.
3: (laughs) And and the chemistry matters in the ring, right? When you're going up against a guy. I mean, that's, who did you have the best chemistry with?
5: I mean, guys like Jake, uh, again, it's like coming from, uh, the same, I guess, understanding of the psychology of what, what this business is. It helps i mean a lot of times guys that that are trained or, or came up like a lot you know, like a lot of the guys that i worked with all worked under bill watts at one point and bill in addition to being a great promoter you know i mean it wasn't the greatest wrestler but in terms of the psychology and he learned everything he learned from a guy named eddie graham eddie graham learned everything he learned from a guy named dory funk senior and so my whole family you know my my dad and dory funk senior uh, had a three-hour and fifteen-minute Texas death match in Amarillo, Texas, in 1966. Three hours and twenty minutes. That's wild. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, how how how, how, do, how in the world do you hold a crowd that long? It's, it's a skill. Well, well, they did everything. They went out. They fought out into the aisles and out into the street. False count anywhere. That was crazy. But still, you had to have a special something. I remember
0: one time in Poughkeepsie, New York, years ago, Hulk was the biggest name we had. I mean, we had superstars on the card, but Hulk was our big draw always, right? And I remember Vince came to me one day and sat on the boxes and he goes, You know, Jimmy, I'm looking for my next attraction because if anything happens to the Hulkster, oh my gosh. He goes, I'm looking for somebody that can walk through any airport in the world. And even a casual wrestling fan will go, oh, my God, look who it is. Casual now that barely watches. Then I can take them, put them on the Today Show, the Tonight Show, and they can hold their own with a host about any subject and not make the company look bad. Then I can take them, put them on TV for about six months. They can make me a million dollars in merchandise, and we're off and running. The Rock had it. Stone Cold had it. Hulk Hogan had it, and John Cena had it. Let me ask you, who's got it, right now, of all those of the? Yeah, parties, who, name? who has it? I'm just asking. You. I would say The Rock. All right, Rock. well, no, I said The Rock. Oh, who Rock, has it? Stone oh. Cold, John Cena, and Hulk Hogan. That's merchant. That's merchandise. Millions of dollars worth of merchandise. Rick the Flair. Live, Rick the Flair. Million dollars worth of merchandise. Who do you who do you think, Ted? You mean like right now? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, Cena's already done it. But Roman Reigns. Okay, Roman, I'll, I'll agree with that. I think Roman's got a great thing. Yeah.
3: I would have said Flair. Flair to me could still pull that off. Yeah,
0: I think Flair can walk through any airport. People know who he is. 100 oh, yeah. percent. Oh, absolutely. But you know what? Um, yeah, but you said right now. Right. I'm,
5: I'm thinking you're talking about this era. Right.
0: Right. Yeah, Roman. I think Roman was Roman's got Rick's, a great look. You yeah. know,
5: Rick's my era, and maybe even a little bit before. You and uh, you and Rick hang out on the road uh, back in the day. Yeah, we did. Yeah. I can't tell those stories. How'd that go? You got, you got a half a story to tell?
3: <laughs> uh, nope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, Rick, to be fair, Rick told most of them himself, or at least a lot of them, oh, in yes. that uh, yeah. that he, uh, oh. 30 for 30. Was that uh, inaccurate? You mentioned the Andre doc was accurate on Andre. Was the Rick Flair doc accurate on Rick? Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but you know what? I want to say this, too, about some
0: of the managers. I had a chance to work with some of the greatest managers of all time. I had Bobby the Brain Heenan. Tremendous, uh, Lou Albano, Fred Blassie, just so many of them. But one of my favorites has always been Paul Heyman, mm. and I'll tell you why. Genius, he's a genius. Well, Paul Heyman to this day, what he did for ECW. When you see people for WWE pull tables out of the ring, they go ECW, ECW, or Kendo sticks, ECW. Hey, oh, if you watch some of the interviews, some of the guys do now. Everybody does the the thing Stone Cold. What? In between it. When Paul Heyman does an interview, they don't interrupt him and go, What? What? Mm. You know? And I just think Paul Heyman's tremendous. I love his interviews. I love listening to him, and I've always been a fan.
3: So, Ted, uh, how would 25 year old Ted DiBiase, the beginnings, whatever the beginnings were of the Million Dollar Man, how would he fit into today's wrestling landscape? Ooh. Would you have to modify yourself at all to to be part of today's wrestling scene? I I really don't think so. Mm. I mean, because you don't have to be the billion dollar man. I mean, that well, well, yeah, that's
5: it. I mean, yeah, like a million dollars is chump change now. (laughs) But uh, win that, yeah, uh, I would say because the thing about it was like, and I I told Jimmy this. We were talking. um, You got to be the character. I mean, what Vince gave me was the character you know I, and I, I i i gradually grew into that character even to the point where uh, i remember I remember i was doing we were doing interviews we used to do all our interviews like we do it like tv every 3 weeks and we do the interviews for the next towns we were going to be in and so i ended an interview with a laugh vince just happened to be walking by and he stuck his head in the door and he says, that's the million dollar man. And I want to hear that laugh every time you do an interview. So I said, I tell everybody, I said, I had almost a 20 year career. I've, I've held all these different titles. I've been regarded as, as a great technical wrestler and all this stuff. And what am I remembered for? <laughs> but, but you know what? It's so
0: hard now being anybody because of social media. Yeah. Yeah. yeah social media its really, really tough doing anything. And what, why is that? Well, I think because it's like Ted just said, you know, they gave him the gimmick. If you're flying home, you can't be going southwest. you, you got to be going first-class Delta. You know, a limousine's got to pick you up when you get to your house. If they go to your house and going, damn, what's he doing in this this? <laughs> there's trailer park over here. What the heck? Not that he, I'm kidding on that, but
3: a million dollar man can't live in a trailer <laughs> you know, park over you know, funny.
5: I, I did Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I go home I'm in Mississippi and they go, Ted, you know, where where is that house? I said, no, that's actually the boss's house. It's in Connecticut. <laughs> so we did it at Vince's house.
3: How did you, Ted? How, d- 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 you know, there's some similarities, I would say, between you and Flair in terms of like the lifestyle, the, machismo or whatever one of you, how did, did you try to separate yourself, differentiate yourself when you guys were working together? Or did you feel like you were unique enough? Oh, I
5: know. I I felt like I was,
3: I, I was unique enough.
5: I think, I think Rick's got his style. My, my style, they, they are similar. I would say that, but I mean, we, we gelled together very well. And that's, I, you know, that's one guy that I, I've had several matches with, but I, he's a guy I would have loved to have just had a, a full blown program with, mm-hmm. because we we work so well together, mm-hmm. in and out of the ring. Yes, <laughs> you know, so again can't tell those stories. But I
3: mean, come on, you got to give like a nah. half a one. Nah, <laughs>
5: <You're not. laughs> can't do it.
3: Social media.
5: <laughs> well, <laughs> so cool. and back to, back to you know. So I, I wear the I wear the costume. I got the boisterous laugh, the you know the real strong interview. But when I got in the ring. I set those things aside and I, I didn't wrestle any differently than I always had, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of like, uh, as a heel, uh, you know, you got to show the fans and the people watching that, you, that you've got it, that you are legit, you know, that you can wrestle, that you're, that you're good. But, but then you also show them that at the first opportunity, you're, 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 mm-hmm. that you can, you're going to, you're going to take the low road if that's what it, you know, and, and, uh, to me, it makes people hate you even more.
3: <laughs> what do you think of today's wrestlers? I mean, the, the athleticism has clearly grown a lot. It's oh like in all
5: sports. Oh my gosh. Grown. Yeah. Un- unbelievable. I'm watching these guys today and it's, <laughs> I said, I, I couldn't do that in terms of some of the, some of the stuff they're doing. You know, I don't think that I, you know, Either I couldn't do it, or maybe I wouldn't do it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Nothing you want to try. (laughs) Nothing I want to try. Jimmy, as we get ready for SummerSlam on Saturday, look at the wrestlers participating. If you could manage any one of them, who would it be? You know, believe this or not, Baron Corbin,
0: and I'm going to tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because he definitely needs a manager. My pitch to him would be, hey, look, buddy, you're down on your luck. At one time, you were great. You had it all. You were the king. Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. I manage a lot of guys, man. You can even call me Collect, but I'm telling you right now, I'll take you to the top. But Baron would be great to do stuff with. But you know what? I'm looking for some of the matches Bianca Belair. Bianca Belair against Sasha Banks. You know, Bianca Belair, the first time I saw her on NXT, she reminded me of a group called TLC, Left Eye Lopez. She reminded me of Left Eye Lopez, and I went, man, she looks just like her. So I started watching her matches. She's great. I'm looking forward to the Goldberg match with Bobby Lashley. Uh, of course, one of the big main events, of course, is John Cena. John Cena against the head of the table, Roman Reigns. So there's just going to be so many great matches on the card from the, from the top to the bottom. I'm,
5: I'm looking forward to all of them. You know, and I want to, you know, give kudos to John Cena. John Cena is a guy who came along and, you know, I think it took him a little longer to get there. But since he's been there, you know, what he's done for and continue to do for the image of the WWE, you know, it's just, you know, it's just, it's outstanding. You know, great guy.
3: What do you think of the, and look, pro wrestlers, WWE wrestlers got into movies back in the day. Of course, everybody knows Hulk's turn and uh, Rocky what was a three, three. Um, nowadays, though, the rock huge star, maybe the biggest movie star yeah. in the world right now. John Cena just recently in the latest Fast movie. He's yeah. cr- climbing up the ranks. What do you think of that? I mean, is that something you feel like was wish you would have available to you back in the day? Would yeah, The Million Dollar uh, Man have made a good actor back in the day?
5: Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I
0: think
3: so. Yeah. <laughs> but what's
0: helped that would have been too a great heel. What's helped that to us? Social media. Because <laughs> Hulk's didn't have it back in those days. But yeah. I, well, I love all the movies. They're great.
3: What if the Hulk had social media back in the
0: day? Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I probably wouldn't be sitting here next to Ted. I'd be with him somewhere carrying his <laughs> luggage going, "Hulkster, let's go do the next movie, baby. <laughs> well, you've had a great
3: relationship with Hulk over the years.
0: We've uh, over 42 years. We started in Memphis together. When he was just Terry Boulder, we, we met there. And then uh, New York,
5: then some of the other wrestling companies, which I won't mention. And, and then we're finally back again. Hulk Hogan had his very first match in Madison Square Garden against a young Ted DiBiase. And it, he was the heel and I was the baby face. Really? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I asked Vince Senior, who was the boss then, I said, I know you, you got a lot planned for this guy. So, you know, it's like, and it was actually my last, I was, I was having that match. And I was leaving the territory. And, uh, I said, how would you like me to do this? And he said, Ted, he said, I, I I trust you. I I said, he said, you do it the way you want to do it, which just made me want to do it the best way I could all that much more, you know, to show him, uh, that I had that kind of respect for him. And so I, you know, that was, that was Hulk's first match. And then I didn't see him for the longest time after that, you know, and then he became a big star or what have you. And then, uh, then when I, went, I had just signed to go come back and be the million dollar man. And I, I can't even remember what, what town it was where we were together, but Hulk uh, came up to me and shook my hand and he said, it's payback time, pal.
3: <laughs> Did you <laughs> have like, any inkling back then of what Hulk Hogan would become? No,
5: no, no. Had no, no inkling. You know, I mean, that was just—I mean, uh, I knew he had talent because you know I, I saw it in the match we had in the Garden. But again, that was just—that uh, was just the beginning.
3: Jimmy, when did you get? When did you know that Hulk Hogan was going to be huge? Well, but when he was called Cherry Bollea. I
0: was still doing the music back then, but before I got into wrestling, and uh, I was uh, had a, a show down in uh, Memphis that we were doing three shows a night. Because when you don't have hit records, you're not on tour anymore. So it's more, hey, you're playing the Ramada Inn. Hey, we do three shows a night. Hey, the more you <laughs> drink, the better we sound. Happy birthday, Mary. <laughs> You know, So we were doing that. But So before I'd go over there, I'd go to the wrestling to see uh, the first couple of matches. So Hulk was there. So I remember Jerry Lawler came to me. Now, Lawler denies this, but we talk about it all the time. Lawler goes, he goes, you see that big guy in the ring? What do you think? And I went, oh, my God, he looks great, man. He's bigger than everybody. He looks good, man. The people seem to be responding. He goes, trust me, this guy will never make a dime in this business. And I went, okay. (laughs) Now, when I see Lawler always say that, he goes, I never said that. I never
3: said that. I said, you did too, King. (laughs) That's a true story. I believe it. You can catch WWE SummerSlam live at Allegiant Stadium right down the road. If you can't make it, watch on Peacock. The broadcast begins at 8 o'clock Eastern time. Ted DiBiase, Jimmy Hart. It's been an honor, fellas. Thanks for being up here with me today.
5: We love you, and thank you, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank thank you, thank you. you. Just just one more thing. Always remember,
3: everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. (laughs) Yeah! All right, we are live here at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. The site, or at least the city, Manny Pacquiao, Jordanis Ugas, that fight Saturday night. Also, SummerSlam on Saturday over at Allegiant Stadium. For the people here in the crowd that didn't hear me before, in about half an hour, Colin Coward will be here with Triple H. So you want to stick around for that. Also, while you're here, follow The Volume Sports on Twitter and Instagram. Lots of good stuff on there from everything going on uh, today. But right now, we're going to talk a little boxing because we are here for Pacquiao Ugas. I'm pleased to be joined by two of my friends, Keith Ideck from BoxingScene.com. Dan Raphael now working over at TheRingTV.com, Ring Magazine uh, this week. Guys, I want to get to Pacquiao Ugas, but there was some big news this week about the biggest star in boxing. That is Canelo Alvarez. He has a deal, as he made official on social media, to face uh, Caleb Plant for the undisputed 168-pound championship. This was a fight, Keith, that was discussed for weeks, if not months. Uh, As of a couple of weeks ago, it fell apart. Uh, Canelo moved off that September 18th date that he wanted here in Las Vegas. He moved up to November 6th. And we have a fight. Uh, what do you know about how this came together over the last couple of days? Well, look, Canelo
7: Alvarez had to make some concessions to get the fight that he ultimately wanted, and he did do that. You know, he he, he wants to be the undisputed super middleweight champion of the world, and he has to fight Caleb Plant to do that. So he was going to have to give a little, and he did do that. And now here we are with this fight coming up November
6: 6th. Dan, uh, any surprise that this fight was ultimately made? Not at all, because like Keith was saying, this was the fight that... From the even before he fought Billy Joe Saunders, he said that when I beat him, I want Caleb Plant next because I want to be undisputed. So, as I made the comment, and I'm not the only one, when you when you limit your options and you give the other side that much leverage, if you know, sometimes you have to give up something to get what you really want. So, it fell apart. You know, they they try to bluff their way to get what they want. It didn't work. They made the threat slash you know bluff that they would try to make a fight with Dimitri Bivol for his light heavyweight title, or maybe Bivol would come down. But ultimately, the fight that he wanted, that motivated him, that, you know, he's all about making history. He can't make history against Demetri Bivol. He can make a lot of history against Caleb Plant. There's never been an undisputed super middleweight world champion in either the three-belt era or the four-belt era. He can become the first one to do it, and so can Caleb Plant, of course. Uh, And the issues that they had in the language for the contract that ultimately failed to get them a deal to do the fight on September the 18th, uh, as it was explained to me by somebody that has been involved in making the fight, It was termed to me, and as I wrote uh, in my newsletter last night, that it should never, that everybody dug in unnecessarily, that it probably could have got done if they weren't all such knuckleheads, Uh, but ultimately they, they revisited the language, they worked on it, they massaged it, and they got it to a point where both sides could live with it, and ultimately we have a fight, and it's the right fight. And I'm glad that it's happening. It's the one that's appropriate right now. People said, well, he should go fight, you know, Better Biev or Bivol or whoever. And, like, there's time for that. Right now, clean up 168. Do what you set out to do. Make your history. And if you win, then you can go on and you can fight some of those other bigger names. Uh, But right now, this is the fight for boxing that that, that I think the sport needs in a really, you know, terrible year overall. Uh, You know, I'm all about the history of the sport. And this is a great historical fight.
3: Keith, it is the right fight. I think, for Canelo. He can always go fight Dimitri Bivol next year. Frankly, I'd like to see Bivol turn around now and make a deal with Zerto Ramirez, which would give the winner something of a mandate to face Canelo next year. But Caleb Plant, you look at him on paper, he's undefeated, he's got a good amateur background, he's an excellent boxer, smart boxer, but he's never faced anyone even close to the level of Canelo Alvarez. Uh, how Do you think he's got more than just a puncher's chance in a fight like this? Well, he's not a huge puncher for starters, Well, that eliminates the puncher's <laughs> chance
7: possibility then. Okay. <laughs> but, but it, look, he's a talented guy. He, he's athletic. He's a good boxer. Uh, his power is probably a little bit underrated, although he's not a huge puncher. But he's taking not a big step up in competition. He's taking a gargantuan step up in competition against arguably the best pound-for-pound fighter in the sport. And, look... his track record over the past three years since he won the title his resume is thin I guess you would say in those three fights nothing that he's done in those three title defenses has prepared him for what he'll encounter November 6th but Caleb Plant knows that and that's what he signed up for. Dan what do you
6: think? I agree with Keith I mean it is a quantum leap up you know you're talking about a guy that was fighting Mike Lee three fights ago and now he's fighting the pound for pound king and look I've known Caleb Plant his whole career. I respect his ability. He was a good amateur. Uh, he's a hard worker. as a pro. He's a good guy. Uh, I, I think that even though he's fought maybe some opponents that aren't the greatest, you know, one of them was a mandatory, or actually I think two of them were mandatories, uh, I know that he wants to test himself against better opponents, and I, I, re, I respect that and I like that. He's getting the opportunity because for as much as this fight is about the opportunity for canelo alvarez to make the history that he wants to make there's another guy across the ring who can equally make the history if he wins if he wins he's the first undisputed champ he changes he changes his life regardless because of the payday he gets for the uh, fight that coming in uh, in november if he wins a fight it's even going to be that much bigger you know, if there's a rematch or whatever he may do after that uh, the only problem i have is that when i think about the, the underdog status that he has I find myself struggling to think about what, you know, it's like Keith said, he's not a puncher, so he doesn't really have a puncher's chance, particularly against a guy like Alvarez who was considered in boxing to be one of the best chins in the sport. So I struggle to find anything in the arsenal of Caleb Plant where I could say that's the weapon that can beat Canelo Alvarez. In other words, Canelo does everything really well. He's a good puncher. He's got pretty good defense. He's got good feet. He's got good head movement. He can punch to the body. He punches to the head. He can use both hands. He mixes his punches up. He has new things in his arsenal all the time, as far as I can tell. And so, please, somebody tell me what's the weapon that Caleb Plant can use to win seven rounds.
3: Yeah, I think it's going to be a big challenge for him because Canelo, in just all the things you said, one of the smartest boxers in the ring, even willing to give rounds away early on to set up what he's looking for ultimately at the end. I want to reach Keith for the low-hanging fruit for a minute because I...
6: He when, excels when the, at that.
3: When the Plant fight seemingly fell apart a couple of weeks ago. I started to wonder, are we going to maybe get Canelo against Gennady Golovkin for a third time? Because I think in terms of mainstream appeal, that fight still hasn't. We you know, boxing people deep in the weeds like we are. May say Golovkin's 40 years old, Canelo's hitting his prime. He would destroy him. I think most people out there who follow boxing on a casual basis, maybe even some people in this crowd now still want to see a third fight between Canelo and and Triple G. So do, do you feel like that has just... Is that gone forever? Like the idea of a third fight between those two? I
7: don't think it's gone forever until Gennady Golovkin loses against someone else. Once he loses to someone else, and that will happen the longer he sticks around, then it loses all of its luster as opposed to some of its luster at this point. But look, I just want to say one thing related to what Dan said. He said, how is he going to win seven rounds against Canelo Alvarez? Well, how is anyone going to win seven rounds against Canelo Alvarez in Las Vegas? Because...
3: You think that's a big variable in this fight?
7: A huge variable. Yeah. You have a guy who's not a huge puncher who might need to win by knockout against a guy with a granite chin.
3: Mm-hmm. Not a good formula. I mean, he's had... He's won all those close decisions, but they have been close decisions here in Vegas. You could probably point to the Aris lara fight. Was that leaned in his direction? Of course, there was the Mayweather scorecard, which was a debacle. CJ Ross, never to be seen again. But...
6: It's close, Dan. I must interject, though, on the Lara fight. I don't know, Keith, if you were at the Lara fight. Were you there? No. I was at the Lara fight, and I will go to my grave believing that Canelo Alvarez clearly won that fight. Aroslani Lara is a good boxer. He spent way too much of that fight literally running around the ring in a circle. I cannot give guys seven rounds running like that.
3: I don't want to get off off topic here because let me ask you then, Dan. Do you believe we will at some point see Canelo Golovkin three?
6: I think it's possible. I mean... uh, it's boxing. I mean, we saw an, an exhibition between Roy Jones and Mike Tyson.
3: Well, I don't want to see that. No, I want to see I'm like you making, know.
6: I'm only making the point that any you never close the door forever. Oscar is yeah. coming out of retirement. He's going to fight a real fight. So anything is possible. Now, within the context of them still being like legitimate fighters, I do think it's possible. Triple G is lined up to fight Murata at the end of this year. We know what Canelo is upcoming What is he doing, is by the way? Be.
3: Why are we doing this? Why is he taking another year off to fight Rota Murata? Ju- I know there's a payday there attached to it. It's a big it, payday for him. What are we like, doing he,
6: he gets a chance to, you know, in his mind, it's important to try to unify the titles, okay? What happened
3: to the guy, though, fellas, that like, was fight anybody? It was fighting almost four times a year sometimes. What happened he to He soured
6: that guy? on the sport. Listen, I'll say this. He got rich. He did get rich. <laughs> that happens here, a lot, Here's your thing about that, uh, Chris and Ke- uh, Keith. When he was coming up and destroying everybody, There was nobody more fun to cover and to deal with and to work with and to watch than Triple G and his team. And ever since the loss, that he had in the controversial second fight against Canelo
3: it wasn't really controversial though. It was close. That wasn't controversial. Well,
6: I think a lot of people thought it. Was the, the majority of us at ringside had it a draw. Not I, even.
3: I had. Uh, I think I had a Golovkin 115-113, But that's let, not controversial. Let's call that's
6: it, like let's call it the the entire situation with Canelo from the first fight with the positive. Oh, the first, the, the first fight was controversial. The first fight. The whole second, not so much. Of his involvement with Canelo has left him soured, and he just became kind of reticent and bitter. Do you agree, Keith?
7: And, and he didn't get the third fight that he was promised when yes. he signed with the zone. I mean, yes. that was all through no fault of his own. He has not gotten also the third true. fight that he's thought was part of the deal and that jaded him even more on the boxing business. Yeah. I
3: still want to see it. I mean, if Golovkin beats Tevis Murata, like let's get that happening in May of 2020. I would be I down
6: think. with that. I mean, I I'd like everybody. To see everybody, the, after the
4: everybody. I'm fight. sorry,
3: the mainstream audience still wants to see Golovkin, Triple G. But I don't, I say, but and I don't think honestly, even though we believe Canelo would win, like there has needs to be some decisiveness to it. There has been no decisiveness to their fights. The first you, fight was a draw, the second a close loss. Give me a decisive decision Let for Canelo you, Triple G.
6: So if he beats Plant, and Triple G gets through the Morata fight, and now the decision has to be made. What's next for Canelo? And they're talking about Benavides, or they're nah, talking about pass. Charlo moving up, nah, or pass. Triple G. You like the Triple G best, right?
3: Triple G best. or yeah, yeah I, I mean, then Bevo fights Ramirez, and then give me Triple G, then give me the winner of Ramirez, and then whatever. You want to do Charlo? Have Charlo and Benavides fight each other, all right? They're not going to do it, but have them fight each other, and, and the winner can potentially face him down the line. All right, Keith, I want to talk about Pacquiao and Ugas this weekend. That fight, T-Mobile Arena, you can see it on Fox Sports pay-per-view. Uh, this is a fight kind of put together last minute after Errol Spence Jr. was forced to withdraw less than a week or less than two weeks ago now uh, with the eye injury. As you look at this fight, what's the biggest variable to you? What's the unknown here? Is it Pacquiao's age? Is it Pacquiao's layoff? Is it that most people here probably couldn't recognize Danis Ugas if he walked by? Uh, his rather unheralded resume outside of. Was that too mean to Ugas right there? Well, was that. Okay. There are. Uh posters of them all Oh, that's around. true. So maybe yeah, if he stood in front of, of the poster, now. you'd recognize Ugas. But what's the I mean, biggest unknown with you?
7: I think it's a combination of two of the things you mentioned, Chris, that Manny Pacquiao is 40 42 years old. He'll be 43 in December. He has not fought in two years. That's very unfavorable math for Manny Pacquiao. So how much does he have left? Is he still the same fighter that beat Keith Thurman in his last fight in July 2019? If he's still that same guy, he will beat your Dennis Ugas convincingly maybe even become the first person to stop your Dennis Ugas who has shown a very good chin throughout his career but uh, I think those are the two biggest things that we have to watch for tomorrow night what does Manny Pacquiao have left at 42 years old fighting yet another bigger taller fighter who has only lost one time in his last 12
6: fights and that was a very controversial loss to Sean Porter. Dan what do you think? I mean, Keith said it perfectly, you know, and one thing just to add to that, you know, he does have that one loss in his last 12 fights, but he's never uh, lost other than that fight as a welterweight. His previous losses were essentially weight struggling losses at 140. So Ugas has done a great job and he's got some not superstar opponents on his record that he's beaten, but he's beaten some quality guys. He beat Jamal James, who has a semblance of a belt now. You know, he beat Omar Figueroa, who was a former lightweight Now, we don't champion.
3: talk about WBA belts here. We do not talk about WBA well, belts I here. I understand,
6: That's... but, I mean, Jamal is still a bonafide top ten contender in that weight class. He defeated... I stand
3: by fee-gobbling bloodsucker. That's fine. I'm
6: with you on that. I've been saying that for 15 years. Uh, he beat Thomas DeLorme. I mean, he's got, like, reputable guys, Abel Ramos, who we defeated. Um, but I also understand that Pacquiao's coming off the layoff, so I've maintained that... Look, Manny looked as good as maybe he ever looked against Thurman. So my perspective is if Manny comes in and fights Ugas and he's only, say, 70 or 75% against Ugas, that's probably still good enough to beat Ugas. Yeah, Pacquiao to me,
3: I don't think... Well, you know, you can say we'll never... You know, Freddie's been saying, Freddie Roach been saying all week, we'll never see another Manny Pacquiao, and I believe that. But not for the reason kind of he's saying. He's saying... We'll never see a guy jump from 112 pounds to 147 and win titles in those weight classes. I don't think we'll see a fighter that fights the style of Manny Pacquiao and be able to fight at this level. Like, I can explain Bernard Hopkins' longevity. He didn't take punishment, started late in boxing. But for a fighter... That has been in so many, Keith, knockdown, dragout brawls that Pacquiao has been in. Many of them right here in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand Garden Arena against the likes of Miguel Cotto and in Texas, Antonio Margarito, Ricky Hatton until he dropped Hatton on his face. Uh, this guy's been in some street fights over the years. Most of the time, when you have fighters like that, their shelf life is limited. They wind up being a lesser version of themselves as early as their early 30s pacquiao is 42 years old that's older than me i could never consider being in the kind of condition that manny pacquiao is in much less fighting at this level is there any is it just a miracle of nature keith that this guy at 42 is able to get in the ring and challenge fighters like keith thurman who he beat two years ago and now like your Dana
7: it's nothing short of incredible what he's done, but I think the biggest thing that you can point to is that Manny Pacquiao was supposed to fight Errol Spence Jr. tomorrow night, who's one of the most feared fighters in the sport. He's one of the top five pound-for-pound guys almost nine years after he was knocked unconscious by Juan Manuel Marquez right and was left for you know, proverbial dead in the ring over there at MGM Grand Garden Arena. People thought his career was over in December, 2012. And here he is in August, 2021, still one of the top five or six pound for pound fighters in the sport, you could
6: argue. I mean, look, they thought he was done after the Jeff Horn fight, which was in 2017. And he came back strong and and beat, you know, good opponents in, in Matisse and Broner and Thurman. I mean, and you mentioned some of the knockdown dragout brawls. I mean, I mean, Haddon, you mentioned it was a great knockout. wasn't a brawl. But look at the ones we didn't mention. Four fights with Marquez, every one of them a brawl. Right. Uh, Three fights against Eric Morales, the first two of which were absolutely hellacious battles, one of which he lost. And and, and rising up the scale from 122 when he arrived in America 20 years ago and won his 122 title right here at the MGM Grand, all the way up to fighting a, a monstrous opponent in Antonio Margarito, uh, granted, the catch weight was 150 for that title. He won the 154 belt. Manny only weighed 144 for that fight. Yep. So he is, you know, uh, you know I, I've, I've said he's not just a great fighter of this time. He's a greater fighter of all time, one of the best. You know, I made the joke that there are few like him in the 150-plus years that men have put padded, glove, uh, padded gloves on their hands and fought in a boxing ring. He's on that level. And by the way, the fact that he's fighting a guy like Ugas had agreed to fight Spence, fought Thurman. He's not just fighting, like, the next generation of guys that he's fighting. He's, like, two generations past. He's of the Morales-Barrera-Marquez prime. That's almost 20 years ago. I know. I get it. Last
3: question for you guys. Um, This fight has been billed by some as potentially Manny Pacquiao's last fight. Uh, Not necessarily because he is looking shot, but because he has grander aspirations. He intends, at least he says to run for president of the Philippines that election in the spring of 2022. If you run for office, chances are you can't spend your weeks in Los Angeles training at Wildcard uh, Boxing Club. But if you win the presidency, you are probably not going to be a professional boxer. So, Keith, do you think we're seeing the last fight of Manny Pacquiao's career? I don't think
7: this will be the last fight of Manny Pacquiao's career. One, because I think he's going to win tomorrow night. And two, because as incredible, I mean, unfathomable of a story that it could be that a professional boxer could become the president of any nation, no matter how big or small, I don't think that he will become the next president of the Philippines. Now, he might run, which might- Political reporter in the Philippines now? Are you Rafe Bartholomew? Is that what you- Which which might uh, take him away from the sport for an extended period of time, but I- Look, I'm no political expert, certainly in Filipino politics, but
6: that's my job.
7: I, I don't think he will become the president as incredible as it would be, and I think if he wins in style tomorrow night, as I expect him to do, that he will fight again at some point in 2022.
6: Dan, you agree? I, I've, I sort of agree in that sense, but my the way the scenario I have looked at, and I was. Talking to Nick Gianco, who's a Filipino reporter that has covered Manny's entire career, knows him well, and I was sort of getting his viewpoint as it it stands of sort of the public perception in the Philippines, just to sort of see if I was on to something. My perspective was, and he kind of agreed with me, he says, yeah, I could definitely see that happening. The Manny wins on, on Saturday night against Ugas. Soon after, as he said to us on Wednesday, he's going to announce his decision of whether he's going to run in September. Most people think he'll say he's going to run. He'll run for the presidency. Like Keith said, he won't win. The election's in May, and he'll decide to come back, and maybe we'll see him in the ring around next summer, you know, around a year after this fight, which is not an unusual uh, a length of time out of the ring. And then maybe Spence is healed up and can fight again. Maybe Crawford is available. Those are the fights he said he wanted, uh, and that we do see ultimately Pacquiao back in the boxing ring. W- one other thing.
7: Prize fighting, particularly at Manny Pacquiao's level, pays much, much better than even the most corrupt
3: politics. I would... I would probably agree with that. But the headline I took away is IDEC Raphael, Pacquiao can't win. That's what I hope the aggregators. Maybe not uh, the president,
6: but certainly the fight against Ugas.
3: Keith Idek, Dan Rayfield, thanks for joining me up here, guys. Make sure you follow the Volume Sports on Twitter and Instagram at the Volume Sports. And uh for the people in the crowd, when you come back, Colin Coward will be here and Triple H will be here in the building.